what I thought I would talk a bit about is the influence, the effect, and the importance of law in both the cause of a Brexit vote and also the fact it is the law which will have a significant role in shaping um, what will happen going forward. Now, I accept that to a non-law audience, this might be a somewhat of a turn-off of the subject, because law, I accept, turns most people's stomachs, except those who are studying it, for whom they find it absolutely fascinating and undilutedly riveting. But I want to try and convince you that actually the law um, around Europe, the European Union has been really quite significant in a number of ways. The starting point is a really basic one, that actually the idea of the European Union is a legal construct. It's based on a bunch of treaties. And the treaties, yes, have function a bit like a constitution, but nevertheless, um, the treaties do play um, an important role. And so traditionally, lawyers have talked about the project of the European Union about being one as integration through law, that the law has set the standards, uh, states have implemented those standards, and the UK, as a traditional law-abiding entity, has faithfully given effect to those standards. But the big problem has always been a lack of explanation by those involved in both standard setting, and it's important to remember, of course, that we as the United Kingdom were very much involved in setting those standards, but there's been a total lack of explanation and lack of engagement with the public about what those standards are, why they are there, why we should comply with them. And I'm going to use five examples to try and illustrate the role, the influence, and perhaps the damaging consequences of the law. So the first one is the European Communities Act 1972. Now, we're all experts on the European Communities Act now. We now we all know it's going to be repealed by the Great Repeal Bill. But have, ha, apart from the lawyers in the room, how many of you actually read Section 2.1 of the European Communities Act? I know Annan's actually... Be, were you able to hold, uh, hold the Act? Yes. And the vellum, yeah, absolutely. But did you read Section 2.1? No. No, exactly. That's my point. But if you read Section 2.1, it is almost incomprehensible. And yet, Section 2.1 is the absolute crucial provision of the European Communities Act, and it gives effect to the principle of supremacy of EU law, that is, that EU law takes precedence over conflicting national law, and it also gives effect to the other principle of EU law, which is direct effect, which means you can enforce your EU right, law rights on the ground. But this total lack of transparency in the language used in Section 2.1 is either a work of brilliance or a work of obfuscation. And indeed, there's an interesting piece, an interesting letter to Ted Heath um, uh, explaining about the concerns about the, European, uh, the UK being taken into the, what's now the European Union by deceit because people didn't really know what they were voting for because nobody explained to them about the principles of supremacy and direct effect. So my first point is that European Communities Act, absolutely fundamental constitutional piece of legislation in the UK, um, doesn't really say what it says on the tin and also causes considerable confusion. Now the other thing in the European Communities Act 
is um, the so-called Henry VIII clause. Mm. The clause gives, allows the executive to implement directives through statutory instruments, so secondary law, and those sec statutory instruments can also <coughs> amend um, acts of parliament. Now, one of the reasons that's been given about take-back control is that people didn't really know what was happening, that Parliament wasn't scrutinising properly all of these directives which had to be turned into UK law. And there is a paradox here that the Great Repeal Bill, although Theresa May said in her party conference speech, would any repeal of uh, EU legislation would have full parliamentary scrutiny, if you look at David Davis's speech, he says they'll have to have the flexibility through what will be Henry VIII clauses to, for the executive to repeal um, Acts of Parliament and indeed statutory instruments. Because if you think about the huge volume of EU law which is at stake, it can't possibly be thoroughly scrutinised by Parliament. Parliament hasn't got the time or the capacity. So take back control will mean take back control for the executive and not for the democratically elected legislature. And when people began to realise the significance of what the European Communities Act was all about, you start getting a degree of backlash. Now this is a cartoon from The Sun from uh, the mid-1990s. But it does make the point very effectively about the fact that they've suddenly realised that EU law takes precedence over national law, that Westminster is now under new management, that if you've got political queries, please call Brussels, and indeed every aspect of our lives is being regulated by Brussels, including what we drink and what we eat. And this is a very powerful message. And the reason why I show you a cartoon from the mid-1990s is to say that nothing is new. The, the referendum campaign was effectively a culmination of decades of misunderstanding um, and misrepresentation of uh, key elements of EU law. Now, not only is <coughs> the, the European Communities Act not explain in very simple terms what we had signed up to. Mm -hmm. But there are certain bits of legislation coming from the European Union which really went against the grain of British practice, British understandings. I'm going to give you two examples. One was the um, Metric Martyrs case, which was based on um, concerns about uh, labelling of products, <coughs> labelling of loose products, so fruit and veg in a greengrocer's shop. That fruit and veg was meant to be labelled in kilos, so in metric measurements, in large font, and it could be in um, imperial measurements in small font. Now, unfortunately, Mr <coughs> Coburn, who's on the bottom left, um, thought this was a load of nonsense and he labelled all of his food in imperial measurements. And the overzealous folk in Sunderland Council, note Sunderland, the overzealous <laughs> folk in Sunderland decided to prosecute him. He was extremely ill-advised by the then Eurosceptic um, organisation who put way too much money into the case and unfortunately instructed some very poor lawyers who 
dealt with the case entirely on the wrong premise of some great constitutional issue, rather than actually making a simple claim that this legislation requiring metric in big, imperial in small, should have been um, in breach of the subsidiarity principle and should have challenged the legislation on that basis. But it's very unfortunate because he was convicted because the judges, including Mr. Uh, Lord Justice Laws, who's currently um, with a good heart uh, visiting fellow in Cambridge at the moment, was upholding the rule of law. But very sadly, not long after Steve Thoburn died, uh, and it's thought that the stress of that killed him, it was a sense that EU law was getting out of control. And to be fair to the EU, they recognised that, because there was a move, there was a plan to phase out uh, imperial measurements altogether, but that um, they did at least put a stop to that. But another example which went really against the grain of British practice is the directive, which is probably the least popular directive that there is in the books, the Working Time Directive. Actually, Working Time Directive trying to limit the 48-hour working week and also lays down four weeks paid leave. Lots of people think four weeks paid leave is a good thing. But nevertheless, badly drafted directive, which took very little account of the cultural industrial relations traditions in the member states. And as a result, it was a perception that Brussels is telling people what to do with their working lives. And so once the directive was adopted, you get this is the cartoon in the sun. Now, this cartoon was legally correct at, incorrect at the time because it said, this is your captain speaking, my co-pilot and I have just completed 48 hours. Now, in fact, at the time, the, there was a derogation for anyone in the transport sector. So this cartoon is, in fact, uh, incorrect. But nevertheless, it made the point very clearly, why on earth should Brussels be interfering with all aspects of our lives? Now, there was, the UK did in fact challenge the legality of this directive, and they said this directive shouldn't have been adopted in the way it had been, this directive shouldn't um, have been adopted at all because mm. this is very much a matter for the Member States, and indeed this directive went too far, but it, the UK comprehensively lost that litigation. And this gave um, James Goldsmith, I think this was um, the campaign that um, he funded the opportunity to take out a full-page advert in the newspaper, so we're now still in the mid-1990s, discussing the impotence of the then Prime Minister John Major. Now, this is not about his sexual or other prowess, although we know more about that now than perhaps he would have done. But in fact, it's talking about the fact, you can see, John Major says he will get tough on Europe, but however much he huffs and puffs, it makes no difference. The indisputable fact is that the Conservative government have already signed away our sovereign rights. So it's this objecting to the fact that the um, Court of Justice <coughs> upholds a piece of legislation which goes against the grain of our traditions, and you've got the backlash. Now, a bigger backlash comes with the Constitutional Treaty in 2004, the ill-conceived, ill-named probably hubristic treaty, which tries to make the EU much more like a state. Now, remember I said to you about the law, that the EU is a construction of the law, and this was meant to be the crowning achievement of the law, and it had some very ambitious aims, including it called itself a constitution, there were all the symbols of the constitution, 
the Charter of Fundamental Rights was added, and also there were things to try and curtail the powers of the European Union. But for my purposes, for what I'm trying to talk about today, is the fact that the French objected, and so did the Dutch. And the Dutch objected to really quite by quite significant levels, 62 to 38, on a quite a high turnout. So it is worth bearing in mind that it was always an extremely dangerous strategy for David Cameron to undertake seeking a referendum, because every time the public have been asked in a referendum what they think of some aspect of the European Union, they've always said not much, and indeed voted against. So you've got the French and the Dutch saying no, and of course there were serious attempts not to listen, because you've got, this is a Steve Bell cartoon from the Times saying, can you hear anything? And an EU Commission official saying, not yet, and even if I could, I wouldn't listen. And anyway, they're probably trying to say yes. And of course, this is rather, this made me think of this last night when I heard Donald Tusk saying, actually, when people voted to leave in the UK, they might actually, in fact, be changing their mind. And this is exactly mm -hmm. what the reaction was from the Brussels elite um, back in 2005-2006. Uh, Meanwhile, when the UK, when the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown was being pressed for a referendum, he said, no, we're not going to have one. And there is an argument, it would be interesting if you do one of these thought um, exercises now, to say, had there been a referendum in 1992 on the Maastricht Treaty, had there been a, a referendum on the Constitutional Treaty, what would the position have been then? Has the effect of the referendum in uh, 2016 been a culmination of failures by the, uh, those in power to engage, to listen, and actually to give the public the opportunity to take a view on what's happening in their name. And that brings me then to my fourth point, which is about the Referendum Act itself. Now, I've just put up there section one of the Referendum Act uh, 2015, and what's so remarkable about the Referendum Act is just how simple it is. It says a referendum is to be held on whether the UK as a whole should remain as a, a member of the European Union. The referendum must be no later than the 31st of December 2017, which begs the question, why was it held? Why did the UK rush into it uh, in June uh, 2016? And then with the very simple question, remain or leave. What's striking about the Referendum Act is what's not there. What wasn't there was, for example, the possibility for youngsters to vote. And we do know that 75% of under 25s who did vote, voted remained. What would be the situation if 16 and 17 year olds had been allowed to vote as they um, had been uh, in the Scottish referendum? British expats couldn't vote if they'd been away for a long time. And of course, polls, uh, Latvians and so forth with long-term residents here couldn't vote either. Furthermore, there were no minimum thresholds. As a Labour lawyer, I find this extraordinary because at the same time that the Referendum Act was going through Parliament, so was the Trade Union Bill. And the Trade Union Bill now imposes thresholds on turnout in um, uh, ballots if there is going to be a strike. 
that a strike might be existential to a company, you need thresholds, you need serious thresholds to satisfy. In the case of something which the Remain campaign would argue was existential to the country, no thresholds were put there, nor indeed were there any requirements that all four parts of the United Kingdom should agree. And finally, there was no real um, control over the conduct of the referendum, and in particular, the Leave campaign were never asked to produce a manifesto as to what Leave might look like. And although you have talked eloquently about the fact that your version of Leave is open and internationalist, there's a hell of a lot of people, you saw them on Question Time last night, who wanted nothing of the sort. And the genius of the Leave campaign is, of course, that those three simple messages that could be put on the side of a bus <coughs> meant that you could superimpose onto leave whatever you might want yep. to look for. And thus, the law failed many of the potential Remain voters and, of course, was very effective for the leave campaign. My final point is about Article 50. So Article 50 provision of the Treaty on European Union. It was introduced um, in uh, the Lisbon Treaty uh, in 2009, Lisbon being the replacement for the Constitutional Treaty. And of course it is law which provides the parameters for um, leaving the European Union. It is a flawed law because it was drafted by those who thought it would never be put into practice. So there are many, many questions about what the process will look like. I'm not proposing to talk about those today because if you've in, had gone through the endurance test of being at all of the elements of Brexit week this week, you will have heard quite a lot about the stages and the legal issues involved in um, Brexit. But in fact, what you know is Article 50 has got to be triggered by whom and um, uh, when, uh, by <coughs> whom the Prime Minister says it should be her, uh, Gina Miller et al. say it should be Parliament. Uh, when? Well, of course, that much depends on the outcome of the court case. Why it makes so much difference is because, of course, you've got the two-year rule. And why is the two-year rule so important? Because although two years can be extended by unanimous vote, law dictates a unanimous vote at this point, the re political reality is that we don't think that all remaining 27 member states would agree to extend that two-year period. So there will be a rush to the finish line. It puts the UK in a weak negotiating position. Again. Finally, going forward, again, this is where the law has a lot to say. Now, I'm not going to talk through the details of the various models because my time is running out. We know you have a range of models from the closest to the current situation, which is the EEA, which um, Matthew has said is not acceptable, would not be acceptable to um, the Leave campaign, to the least intensive, or the least intensive form of um, involvement, which is fall back on the WTO rules. Now, I briefly and crudely summarised what the pros and cons of each one is, but the crucial issue and where lawyers have got a lot to say and where it's really important is what do you, who, where do you go when things go wrong? At the moment, you go to the much derided Court of Justice. Court of Justice is there as an effective arbitrator, I use that in a non-legal sense, but effective 
enforcer of legal rights. If we stayed or joined the EEA, of course there would be the EFTA court, also an effective enforcer. If you come down to the WTO line, you have WTO panels. Complete disaster for small business because WTO panels are requ require to be triggered by member states, by national governments. And if you are Joe Bloggs, local business, you don't have the clout to persuade the UK government to go and uh, start a panel case against another member state, another big player, about your little local problem. And the discussion to date has totally failed to acknowledge that there is an important role for enforcement, a legal issue I accept, but an extremely important one for all um, uh, traders trying to operate going forward. My last slide. It's all very well talking about these various future relationships. I suspect it won't be any of these. It will be some sort of combination. It will be some sort of bespoke deal. But in respect to the future relationship, there is an important question. And this, again, is determined by law. And that is the, the future relationship will have to be negotiated under the powers laid down by Article 207 and Article 218 treaty. The crucial point there is that you have to be a third party, you have to be a non-member state in order to enter into any of these relationships. And the EU is playing hardball at the moment and the EU is saying the UK is already is still a member state, we're not even going to start talking to you about the future relationship while you are still a member state. Now this might be rhetorical posturing, in the run-up to the negotiation. But nevertheless, the final and salutary legal point I want to make to you is that there is a reasonable chance that any deal that the UK enters into with the European Union will be a so-called mixed agreement. And the upshot of it being a so-called mixed agreement is it will, it's very likely to require all 27 member states to agree to it in council, plus, the agreement of 38 national and regional parliaments. We know this because this is a situation with the CETA agreement at the moment, the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, and we also know at the moment that Wallonia, Wallonie, <coughs> has said no, we are not accepting the CETA, that's the Canadian Free Trade Agreement. So the risk is that CETA will be blocked unless Paul Magnet can be persuaded to um, think again, that there, there is a risk that the CETA agreement will not be adopted and so the fate of that will become unclear but um, the Prime Minister of Canada is due to fly to um, uh, Brussels this week to um, sign off on the deal. The reason I tell you all this is because this is going to be the position of the UK going forward. Canada, the Canadian deal has taken, depending on how you count, up to nine years to negotiate. The fact is that these legal arrangements, which are intended to curtail the powers of the European Union, because the European Union is not a state, will mean that any deal on a future relationship is going to be very hard to achieve in the short to medium term. That's why we're talking about a hard Brexit, and by hard Brexit it means likely to be covered by the WTO rules unless we can negotiate some decent transitional arrangements which will form the bridge between the current EU membership 
and what might be in the future. Law is the constraining parameters for what has happened, for what is happening, and for what will happen. It's good to be a lawyer some of the time. Thank you very much. Thank you.